98.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free 877 924 7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. If you're joining us for the first time for the next hour, if you have a question about God's Word or a particular concern that you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on, feel free to call us. Again, the local number is 843-525-1859, or you can reach us toll-free at 877 877- WAGP 980. Many people email us uh, as the show unfolds and even during the week uh, with questions they have. And when they do email us, some people say, well, when will I know it's answered? Well, we email you back and say, hey, it's been answered. Sometimes it takes us a month, though, to get to the question because they come in from all over the world. And But we try to respond to as many as we can. And uh, so if you'd like to email us, the email address is tbl for the Bible line at net. Well, Pastor, good morning. It's good to have everybody on board. I see the phone lines are already ringing. We'll see if anybody is brave enough to go live Uh, In the meantime, we do have a a question that was emailed to us from uh, Maureen on Hilton Head. Uh, She was witnessing and sharing with uh, some young folks, and um, a question came up from one of them. They wanted to know, before Christ died on the cross, where did people go when they died? Well, that's a a great question. when people, uh, can you turn up my headset a little bit? Thank you. Uh, when, when people died under the old covenant, the Bible teaches that they went to Abraham's bosom. And there are many passages that describe uh, the place of old covenant saints. For instance, in uh, Luke chapter 16, the Bible says there's a certain rich man who had uh, who was habitually dressed in fine purple and linen and gaily living in splendor. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs and both die. And of course, um, Lazarus, the believer goes to Abraham's bosom. So that's one metaphor that's used to describe the place where old Testament saints went. It's also called Sheol in the old Testament. Technically in the Greek, it's Hades. Now, usually when we think of the word Hades, we think of it, just in a negative connotation. But there's actually a positive connotation to Sheol or Hades. It just meant the place 
of the grave, the place of the grave. And prior to uh, the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord, when he emptied out Old Testament Sheol, uh, at least in terms of the righteous side, people died and went to Abraham's bosom. So when you think of um, Sheol, think of two compartments. There's unrighteous Sheol. Uh, the place where the unbeliever went. And so Lazarus is described in that fashion as being in righteous Sheol, but uh, the rich man as being in unrighteous Sheol. So at the uh, resurrection of Christ, Abraham's bosom was emptied out. And so from here on, absent from the body, present with the Lord in heaven. But Old Testament Sheol continues to exist. It's called Hades. And someday, the Bible teaches in Revelation chapter 20, Hades will continue to exist, but in a different place. Uh, very plainly, God says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the final resting place of an unbeliever is Gehenna, uh, which is where uh, an unbeliever uh, will ultimately find himself at the great white throne judgment. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. 525-1859. Uh, and you can toll-free call us at 877-924-7980 or email us, as uh, this person has, uh, at tbl at net. They write, I know temptations do not come from God, but what about testing? Research seems to indicate that the words temptation, testing, and proving all mean the same. If that is the case, Scripture does indicate that testing does come from God. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Would you help me to understand? Well, it's a good question. And interestingly, in both Hebrew and Greek, uh, the word for tempting and testing is identical in both languages. In fact, uh, there was a time in English when we had just one word. And so, for instance, uh, if you read Genesis 22 in verse 1, it says here in the New American Standard, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, and Abraham said, Here I am. Um, and, of course, that's the great chapter that deals with Abraham offering Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. But the old King James says that God tempted Abraham. Now, that was an excellent translation for the 17th century. But today, temptation is a solicitation to evil. But in the 17th century, the word temptation could have a negative or a positive connotation, just like it does in Greek and Hebrew. Context determines its meaning. So the Bible is very clear. Uh, interestingly, in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Um, and a little bit later in this chapter, he says, uh, let no one say when I am being, uh, when I am being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. It's the same word for trial that's used in, in verse two, identical Greek words. But in the English Bible, we translate one is trials. The other is tempting because one is clearly a solicitation to evil, something that God doesn't do. And the Bible is clear on that. God doesn't tempt people with evil, but God does try and test us uh, to refine us and shape us into the image of his son. So good question. Good language question. Let's uh, let's go to our first live caller who's waiting and uh, we're glad you can join us today. 
Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, good morning. This is Dennis from Wisconsin. Hey, Dennis. Uh, uh, I just want to tell you how much we enjoyed two weeks ago the Meet the Pastors at the New Bluffton campus. Oh, okay, yes. I remember you and your wife came, and if I recall, right. you're, you're planning to, to move here soon. Yes, we are. We'll be there in, uh, later this month. Okay, the, my question is about Matthew 5.39, about turning the other cheek. Yes. What is the proper application in today's world for that Bible verse? Well, it, it's a great question, and the best interpreter of Scripture, of course, is Scripture itself. And so when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants uh, to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat also, and whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so... um, Interestingly, this verse is sometimes uh, been used out of context in a number of different ways. Uh, the Pharisees um, taught the uh, need for personal revenge, and Jesus, of course, totally counters that because revenge, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and the right to uh, administer judicial punishment comes through a vehicle that God calls government in Scripture. So while there are some things that I am able and am given permission to do as a believer, be you an Old Testament or a New Covenant believer, for instance, uh, the Bible teaches the right to defend yourself. Um, We're speaking in the last question that had come in via email about the term uh, testing and, and tempting, And it's one word in both languages, Hebrew and Greek. And so it is with the word kill and murder. It's one word in Hebrew. Uh, And so sometimes people have taken the commandment, you shall not kill. And they've become total pacifists thinking, well, uh, God doesn't want me to kill. And so if I'm in a war situation, I certainly can't take another person's life. Or if someone breaks into my home, I may might, may try to fend them off, but I, I, I can't kill them. Um, and so you have your Quaker pacifists, your Amish, your Mennonites, and even a lot of Baptists in Eastern Europe today. Um, but there's a distinction in the Word of God between killing and murder. And God's Word in the Decalogue says you shall not murder, but in the next chapter he gives permission to kill when your life is in jeopardy and you need to defend yourself. So when I look at this verse in terms of turning the other cheek, the Lord is dealing with um, people who are, are, are dealt in injustice, and we do not have the privilege and the responsibility to take the law in our own hands, if I can use a modern phrase. God has given that right to government, and we as believers as well are not to seek vengeance. We're to bless our enemies. We are to, um, you know, pray for those who persecute us. We're to have a different mindset, a different attitude. And so if a Roman soldier said, hey, I want your shirt, uh, rather than resist him and fight him, Jesus said, give him your cloak as well. You know, be be generous, uh, but don't 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 seek vengeance as the people did in that day against the Roman government. So he's using some illustrations that were prevalent in the day and problems that people would experience in in their 
daily walk with the Lord, and he's just giving some sound counsel, but it doesn't dismiss the fact that we speak the truth in love, that we deal with people in honesty, that there's a time to serve in the military, that there's a time to protect my family uh, if my life is truly in jeopardy, um, and, and neither does it disregard the role that government plays. I have a whole message on this uh, from the Sermon on the Mount series, and so you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org, click on this portion of Scripture, and I go into a lot more depth and detail. But I appreciate that question. Dennis, good to hear your voice. Uh, looking forward. He came, uh, by the way, Rick, to meet the pastor in Bluffton. And some of our listeners may not know, we have just opened a brand new campus in Bluffton, Community Bible Church of Bluffton. It meets uh, behind the BMW dealership and um, at Two Coastal Drive. And so we have a service there at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and we welcome anyone to come. Let's go to our next caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um um, I have a question concerning inheritances. Yes. Um, I understand that when a couple earns money, they put it in a fund together, and it's both of theirs. And um, even with inheritances, that's what we have done. But is it wrong for the spouse to consider an inheritance from their family Theirs, even though I understand, you know, you're sharing it with your spouse, you're sharing it with the family, you're using it to do things for everyone in the home. But in a second marriage, but we wrong to set aside some money for your children alone. And I'll hang up and, and let you answer. Well, it's it's a good question. I I, I hate that she hung up. I want to ask about the second marriage side of it, but well, that, I'm still here. Uh, okay, tell tell me what do you mean? As uh, because you're in a second marriage, you feel like that would change uh, the dictates because what you have biological children from another marriage is that what you're saying? Yes, we uh, both oh, have okay. children. Would it be wrong for me to set aside some money just for my children? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, let me see if I can respond. Um, Obviously, God's ideal is one man, one woman until death severs the relationship. Um, Most people uh, today, a majority of people today who are under the age of 40 have missed God's ideal. Uh, Divorce is rampant, not just in our country, but around the world. Uh, I just came from the Ukraine a few weeks ago. The divorce rate is 78%. It's totally out of control. Um, in either case, um, when you are married, whatever number you're on and you have to deal with, you know, our sinful mistakes, you know, in honesty, there's forgiveness. God can provide forgiveness, but we deal with it honestly. We don't make excuses, but nonetheless, whatever marriage you're in, that is the will of God for your life. You can't unscramble eggs at that point. And the scripture says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So really you become one indissolvable unit. A new family is formed when you marry an individual. And with that said, there needs to be really companionship and partnership. And I don't think it is healthy for people to say, well, this is mine and that's yours in a marriage relationship. And I'm not advocating that that's what you're saying. I'm just trying to share some broad parameters because these are issues that often come up. Uh, For me as a pastor, when I counsel people, for instance, sometimes people in a home have two um, income earners 
and she'll say, well, this is my money, and this is my account, and this is my checkbook, and it's really not. It's um, it's yours together as a couple. Now, you may agree as a couple and say, well, listen, um, I, I want you to have freedom to do with this money, whatever you know, God leads you to do, all things being equal, and I want you to manage this. And But you need to be a team, and you need to be in total agreement as a team uh, on the usages of funds and, and monies and not to have a mine-yours mentality. And I, I really believe the same would apply for in, in inheritance. Now, with that said, I think wisdom would dictate that if you inherited money and uh, you have some biological children that you want to make sure that they are included in the will, uh, your personal will, that they get a certain amount of funds, I think wisdom would dictate that your new spouse would would understand that and want to come alongside and agree with that. But there might be some mitigating circumstances that would dictate otherwise. He may see some things that you don't see, and nonetheless, he's your spiritual head and leader. And he may see, well, you know, this would be a real mistake to give this money to this individual. This would be a detriment. I know you love him, but I think you're too emotionally involved, and I think you need to step back and realize in light of this person's history, their drug problem, their alcohol problem, he may see things that you don't see objectively. And that's why God gave you each other. Uh, You complement each other. You help each other. You work as a team. So um, certainly if there is a point of real contention and division, then you guys have to solve that. And, and if you can't solve it amongst yourself, then you'd want to, you know, maybe meet with a pastor who can come alongside and be objective without taking sides and saying, well, here, here's my perspective and here's the underarching biblical principle. But the overarching biblical principle is that God made the two of you one. And he's given you a spiritual leader. He's your husband. He's not a dictator. He needs to listen carefully to his wife. And a pastor can sometimes say, well, you're not really listening to her. Uh, let me share why. And, um, you know, it, but functioning as a, as a team in total agreement. It's so essential. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at wagp.net. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah, good morning, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Rick. Hey, brother. Thanks yeah, for calling today. Carl. All How right. you doing? Doing well, thanks, Carl. Yeah, we got the same name. It must be great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we always, you always speak, a lot of pastors speak on abortion, and a lot of pastors speak on um, the gay rights. But what getting on my nerves lately is all these piercing and especially tattoos. I'm getting so sick of everybody tattooing their body, but uh, maybe I'm just an old fogey. It's time for me to go home. Uh, can you speak on something of that nature? Well, it's it's a good question, and you're right. You know, tattooing is just like everywhere. E- everywhere you look, you see tattoos. Um, you know, it used to be that as a general principle, uh, we used to say, well, you know, not everyone who has a tattoo is a is a convict or a prisoner or or con man or a ripoff artist or a murderer, but everyone in prison has a tattoo. And so there used to be a certain degeneracy 
that was often associated with the use of tattoos. I would say that that's changed in terms of uh, the way uh, people, I, I see business executives with tattoos, um, which kind of surprised me sometimes. But is it wise? Is it right? I do not think it is wise. Now, you cannot undo what's been done sometimes. But um, we read, for instance, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, I was just turning there. He said, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. And so in the Old Testament, places like uh, 1 Kings 18, cutting is associated with the prophets of Baal. Uh, it's uh, associated in the New Testament, if you remember, with the Gerasene demoniac, uh, with, with, with demonology. And so, you know, why is it that people who are in, into anarchy, devil worship, gangs, paganism are attracted to tattoos? Uh, I don't think it's by accident. I, I think there's a lot of evil that is associated with it, and God tells us not to do it. And many times people come to Christ, they're regenerated by the Spirit, and they really regret that they did get a tattoo or sometimes people, you know, I've had college students say, I was thinking about getting a tattoo, but my mom and dad asked me to talk to you. And I said, please don't do it. Please don't do it. Just, just wait. Um, rather than you can always add a tattoo later on, but once it's there, it's there forever. Um, just wait and say, Lord, um, you know, there is, there is a wisdom and a multitude of counselors. And I would say to him, you know, if you had, Ten godly pastors who really are committed to the Word of God. And I know there's a lot of pastors who got tattoos all over them. Uh, most of them are not committed to the Word of God. One of the most popular ones was a guy in Florida, and he's now been arrested for, you know, um, money consumption, stealing money from his church, and uh, not to mention all kinds of uh immoral scandals that unfolded from his life. But I mean godly men that walk with the Lord and are respectful. And there's a lot of people in the ministry today I no longer respect. I, I just don't respect them. Uh, they, they've just, um, th- their history is so tainted, they can't seem to get past it in their novices and they shouldn't be in the ministry. Lay that aside. I think, in my judgment, that the devil is preparing a generation of people for the mark of the beast where they get so used to marks in the body. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised. You know, we talk about electronic chips in the hands or on the forehead. Maybe so. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the mark of the Antichrist is a literal tattoo. Uh, It could certainly be. And people have uh, so gotten used to them that I I could see it happening. But God's Word speaks against it. There have been some verses that have been used out of context. Some say, well, Jesus has a tattoo uh, when he comes back in glory in Revelation 19. uh, The Word of God is written on his thigh. Well, that's probably on the scabbath that the sword that is proceeding from his mouth, it's written, or it's written on the robe that he's wearing. But I guarantee he does not have a literal tattoo. The only tattoos he has is the nail scars that are in his hands and his feet. So I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We do have another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Uh, probably a, a simple question, but it just I was reading the book of Matthew this morning, just, just started it again, and came to the part where Herod ordered the murder of all babies two years and younger. And I, I was just, for some reason, it just struck me that, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was he? Did 
did he live in an area that was away from the area that Herod was ruling at that time, the reason that he was able to escape death? Yeah, he was not living in Bethlehem at that time, so obviously he escaped death because it was a systematic slaughter of all the children two and under. And, of course, the age two is not just pulled out of the air in light of the timing with the Magi, who, of course, were not there in the night Jesus was born. But they're there probably six months, uh, you know, uh after um, when, when they actually appear in the house. And so in light of the, the timing of when they come to King Herod, when they actually show up at the house, Jesus is not in the in the manger anymore. They're in a house. And uh, he wants to make sure that no baby is left behind, so to speak. And so just to be on the safe side, um, he takes everyone to and under and has them slaughtered. Obviously, John was protected, and he would have been sovereignly protected because he was the Lord's forerunner. Both Isaiah 40 and uh, Malachi the prophet speak of the forerunner of the Lord, and he had been chosen and selected for that very purpose. Even when he was in his mother's womb, he had been called to that purpose. So God was not going to allow him, obviously, to be in Bethlehem at that time. Uh, And if he were, he was not going to be found. So, Again, it's an argument from silence, but because the scripture doesn't specifically say, but obviously he wasn't killed, he wasn't hurt, and um, probably they, they weren't in that place at that time. God had protected him. Maybe he had appeared to that family as well, to his mother Elizabeth and her father, uh, and John's father, Zechariah, to, to make sure that... Um, you know, um, that that he would not be there. But in either case, he was sovereignly protected because God had a specific role for him. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. We have another live caller standing by. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I hope you both are doing well. Yeah, thanks for um, calling. My question is on lordship salvation, and I was just wondering your opinion on your stance on it. Do you think that an unregenerate person who recognizes Christ as Savior but does not accept or understand him as Lord of their life, and that they can grow into that, they can come to salvation, and then through study and an understanding, accept him as Lord of their life later? Or do you think you must see Christ as Savior and Lord to come to salvation? Well, it's a good question. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt in the last 60 years. Uh, I remember reading an article uh, published. I wasn't um, a Christian at the time, but uh, when it was published in 1959, uh, in Christianity Today, but it was a debate between John R.W. Stott, who's now in heaven, he died about a year ago, and another contemporary theologian of the day, must Jesus be Lord to be Savior? And uh, Stott argued in favor of it. Um, Alexander McLaren, if I remember, the opposing theologian argued against it. In either case, a lot depends on terminology and definition and what you mean by it. Uh, sometimes people front load the gospel with lordship salvation 
where it appears that they're teaching almost a works righteousness. But I would say this much. Um, what I find interesting are people like John MacArthur, who, you know, obviously is a very strong lordship salvationist, and he's reaction, reacting to uh, many times the gospel when it's presented as easy believism in cheap grace. Um, the mindset that, well, I, Christ is my Savior and I can live like the devil. Uh, and it really doesn't matter. And again, I would say with the Reformers, though no one can find a quote by any of the Reformers that specifically says this, but their theology definitely teaches it, that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. John Calvin is actually attributed with saying that, but no one can ever find a statement in print in any of his commentaries or institutes by which he actually literally says that. But that is a biblical maxim that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, such that even the most carnal church in the New Testament, the Corinthian church that was filled with problems and all kinds of sin that Paul has to deal with, everything from drunkenness to sexual immorality to uh, people filing lawsuits against each other and on and on. But even in that church, Paul can say, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul can give thanks too for the Corinthians. So in his second letter, he does say, listen, you better test yourself to make sure you are truly in the faith because there are people who confess Jesus as Lord, but their life doesn't show it. And God alone is the ultimate judge because the Bible does teach that a man of God, a woman of God can get out of fellowship with God. The difference between a believer in sin and an unbeliever in sin is number one, the believer is very uncomfortable with it. He experiences an inward anxiety and even turmoil that the unregenerate person knows nothing of because the Holy Spirit within him is deeply grieved when he steps into sin. But beyond that, he also experiences the discipline of the Lord. Sometimes God allows, as the prophet says, for our own sin to reprove us, but sometimes God by his own hand reproves us or disciplines us. And so even here in 1 Corinthians In chapter 11 and verse 30, in the same chapter I just read from, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Uh, So sometimes the discipline comes physically. Uh, David described such a physical discipline that came upon him. He spoke of a weary body and like his body was wasting away when he held on to sin, when he regarded iniquity in his heart. You can read about it in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. It affected his health. And sin will do that. Some people are sick just because they live in a fallen world. Some people are sick because they're in sin. And it's the hand of God. And some people even sleep or have died sooner than God would have liked them to have died because of unconfessed, unrepented sin in the life. First uh, Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of this very truth where you have a, a believer who's... Um, committing a kind of immorality, he says, that doesn't even usually exist amongst the, the, the pagans, the Gentiles. Uh, the Gentiles would find it disgusting that someone has his father's wife. That is that uh, he is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, listen, you should have disciplined him. You should have removed him from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him 
who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. There it is. Uh, Death, sleep, a premature death for the destruction of his flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. First uh, John even speaks of this about a sin that leads to death, not to spiritual death, but to physical death. But I do think that if conversion is real, number one, there is definitely a conviction of sin. A person who comes to Jesus Christ who says, okay, I know my um, uh, adultery is wrong uh, and I want forgiveness, but I have no intention of changing it, he's not really saying it's wrong. Uh, that's not real conviction of the Spirit. And the convicting work of the Spirit precedes belief. He not only convicts us, he also helps us to understand the essence of the gospel. And so only he can do that. And so if someone is truly coming to faith, they are coming to Jesus Christ as a Savior. They're willing to call sin, sin. And if they're unwilling to call sin, sin, then you really have to wonder if their conversion is real. With that said, there is a progressive side to the Lordship of Christ. People come to the Lord sometimes and God deals with one issue in their life and there are hundreds of issues that he hasn't even begun to deal with yet, but he's going to deal with. And so there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament that God gives to save people as to what they need to change or do in light of who they are in Jesus Christ. If it all happened at the moment of conversion, then such commands obviously would be unnecessary. So there's an initial aspect to lordship, um, but there's a progressive dimension that sometimes is uh, um, eradicated or in people's theology or misplaced. And, And many times they have forgotten what they were like when they first came to the Lord and even some of the sins that they struggled with as a new young fledging believer in in Christ. Uh, So again, um, God is the ultimate judge. There'll be some people in heaven that we thought were going to be there that won't be. And there'll be some people that we thought wouldn't be there that will be there. Uh, And God ultimately is the judge. But the general principle of the New Testament is if someone truly has met Jesus Christ, their life will change. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away and a new life has begun. So there is a new beginning, a new life. Uh, granted, there are some people who seemingly stay baby Christians, but there's fruit. You will know them by their fruit. It, it may look like dried raisins on some people, but, but there's some fruit there. And if there's not, then they have good reason to question the legitimacy of their salvation. And the time to question it is now, not later. There are so many people who have a false assurances, which we spoke a little bit of on Sunday. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So again, he, he's speaking of doing the will of the Father, but then people go to the externals. Oh, we preached in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. We even did miracles in your name. But those were all externals, and, and Jesus doesn't dismiss those things, by the way, as a possibility because unbelievers can do them all. 
Uh, but he'll say, I never knew you, not I once knew you, I never knew you, you never had a relationship with me, depart from me, you who practice, there it is, practice iniquity, lifestyle. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about direction, and if there's not a new direction, you have to question whether there's been a new birth. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, another live caller. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Brogy. Um, I had a question about Second Peter. I took your challenge some weeks ago and was reading it four times in one sitting every day for thirty days. Wow. Okay. But I, I didn't. <laughs> but I did have a question. All right. Um, when they're telling us to, when, when the Bible says, "Do not." Um, what, what, that they revile angelic majesties. Uh, what angelic majesties are they talking about? And the second part of this question is, uh, will the world literally be destroyed like the the old world was destroyed by flood? But, you know, the, the, the world itself, the earth itself was here, although the old world was destroyed at that time. Well, when it's destroyed by fire, will it be like that, or will it be a completely new heaven and new earth, or will it just be burned up with fire and you know, but still remain? That's a that's a great question. Um, you know, when he first, let me just deal with reviling angelic majesties. And interestingly, uh, there's a parallel book, as you probably know, to Second Peter chapter two, and that is the book of Jude. Uh, just like Acts is the Acts of the Apostle, the book of Jude is uh, the Acts of the Apostates. And it's a description of um, people who confess Jesus, but then uh, wander away from the faith, giving evidence that their conversion was never really genuine, never really true, never real. And so um, in Second Peter 2, in verse 11, he makes this statement, and again, he's talking about apostates. Um, he says they are daring self-will. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Again, the context are people who are apostates. The word apostasia is the word that means to fall away. And so there are people who come to the edge of Christianity uh, even for a time, they can look Christian, smell Christian, taste Christian, but they're really not Christian. And Jesus, in the parable of the sower, describes such people, for instance, in the more complete description in Luke 8. Let me just read that. And those who are on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. So there is some outward countenance change that even takes place. They get excited. There is emotion here. And these having no firm root, they believe for a while. There, there's an intellectual component to their faith and an emotional. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation, they fall away. And so the Bible describes there are some people who intellectually believe, but they don't believe in. And so the Bible makes a distinction between believing about Christ and believing in Christ. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, the demons believe and tremble, but they don't believe in the Lord Jesus. They don't trust into him in his finished work as a way of salvation. And that's the kind of people that he's describing here in chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Jesus' death was a death that was unlimited in terms of its 
extent to save people. Jesus didn't die for some people or most people, but for all people, not just for the elect, but for the non-elect, because his atonement becomes a basis, not just for the salvation of those who believe, but also the condemnation of those who do not, such that the Bible says, he that believes in the Son has life, he does not believe well, the wrath of God abides upon him. So then he goes on to describe these people and, um, and what it is that they look like. Uh, I preached a series of messages once in the book of Jude. I think I did like 20 messages on the book of Jude. And uh, one of the things that they do here in verse 10, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Now, if you look at the parallel text in in Jude, uh, also inspired by God the Holy Spirit, he's not copying Peter. Peter's not copying Jude, but the parallels are stark, and you would expect so because they're speaking on the same subject, the same kind of people, and so the Spirit of God inspires them to write about the same kinds of things. And uh, here in Jude, verse 8, yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him, that is the devil, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they uh, know by instinct like unreasonable, uh, unreasoning animals by these things they are destroyed. And so there's not a respect for angelic majesties and they exercise uh, authority not really understanding how to exercise it such that even Michael, when he was confronted with the devil, he didn't say, well, I rebuke you, devil. He said, no, may the Lord rebuke you. He came not in his own strength, even though angels are mightier and stronger than men. Uh, something that he's underscoring here to underscore how reasonable it is that we too, who are weaker than angels, uh, come not in our own strength, but the Lord's. Now in the third chapter, he speaks about the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, let me define a couple of terms. The day of the Lord in Scripture is not a reference to a 24-hour day. Now, whenever the word in the Old Testament, yom, is accompanied by a number, and whenever the word in the New Testament is accompanied by a number, it always refers to a literal 24-hour day. But sometimes the word yom can refer to an extended period of time. Uh, when the Bible says God created the world in six days, he's talking about six literal 24-hour days, no gaps or anything between them. Uh, that's what the Bible teaches, and we know that not just because that's the plain reading 
of Genesis, but God gives us a divine commentary on the days of creation in Exodus chapter 20 when he um, gives us the Ten Commandments, Moses, and it's an argument for why one day in seven is to be set apart because in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth. So Moses understood it as six literal days. But sometimes the term day, yom, can refer to an extended period of time or a short period of time. We use it that way sometimes in English. We speak of the day of his youth. We didn't mean that he was uh, a youth for 24 hours, but we're talking about that period of time in which he was a youth. Well, the day of the Lord is an extended period of time in Scripture. And if you did a, uh, a, a search in the concordance, and the great thing about a computer concordance is you can not just search words, you can search phrases which you could not do with your traditional paper concordances. But if you looked at the phrase, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you'd say, oh, there's an awful side to it. Oh, but there's other passages that speak of the day of the Lord, which is a a wonderful, marvelous, great time to it. Well, which is it? Well, it's, it's both. Because the day of the Lord really mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. And so if you're in Israel and it's uh, Friday evening, everything shuts down. And it will be shut down until Saturday evening, at least pious Jews. And, and most Jews um, in Israel, they, they virtually close everything. Um, there's certainly some secularists who don't do that, but most Jews honor the Sabbath. And so it goes from sundown to sundown. And so a biblical day. And so what will happen is interesting Uh, it will get darker and darker and darker, and then the sun will come up, and then it will get dark again. And that's exactly the pattern we have for the day of the Lord in Scripture. It gets darker and darker and darker during the time of the Great Tribulation. In fact, I think we're in the shadows of the Great Tribulation. I think the darkness is already beginning to set, but it's going to get much darker and much worse than you ever could have imagined. Uh, I got a um, email from Texas. It's not on the screen, but I need to answer this person. So I'll answer it as I will um, uh, address your question as well. Uh, some people, you know, send me questions and they expect me to type out an answer to everyone. And I do with some. Some are of such a nature that I will literally type it out. But if I answered every question that came into my website or that people just call the church, they're in other states, other places. Uh, I I would spend all my time answering questions, and I can't do that. And um, I I would be behind a typewriter all day long. So one of the ways I answer questions is through the Bible line, because it gives me a chance to speak the question, and I can speak a whole lot faster than I can type. In either case, um, she was so concerned and so disenchanted and, 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 and depressed almost, over what she's witnessing in our country, in our, in our world. And if I were to write her back, I would just say, listen, Jesus said, don't fear. These things must take place. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where it's given in Matthew's gospel, he says these things must take place, so don't be afraid. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But God is a sovereign God, and God does not want fear to dominate our hearts. It's just a reminder that the end is approaching. And so I believe we're in the shadows of the tribulation, but if you read the Revelation beginning in the fourth chapter to the 18th chapter, it's going to get a whole lot darker than it is. But then in the 19th chapter, 
Jesus comes back. The Son, S-U-N, is a description of the S-O-N in the book of Malachi. The Son is going to come. It's his second coming. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ, at the end of the thousand years, it's going to get dark again. Because tribulation saints who enter the millennium in their natural bodies, who will marry and have children and grandchildren, and they'll live an extended period of time, uh, some of their children and grandchildren will rebel against God's Messiah. And um, it will get dark again. And at the end of that, the eternal state will finally enter in. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief, not at which, but very specifically, the Greek text says, in which, because he's describing a period of time in which the heavens will pass away. When does that happen? At the end of the millennium. So in this day called the day of the Lord, in this period of time, not at which, but in which, um, the heavens and the earth, as we see them, will be totally obliterated. Now, during the millennial reign, they'll be refurbished, and the curse seemingly will be lifted off of creation such that the lion will lay down with the lamb, so to speak, or we should say the, the, the wolf with the lamb. And the baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed. So there will be a curse lifted off of creation. If a man only lives to be 100 years, he's considered cursed. So people will live extended period of times, much like before the flood. But at the end of the millennium, as Revelation 21.1 indicates, uh, John sees heaven and earth fleeing away. And then in 21.1, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. God's not going to refurbish the current planet, not for the eternal state. He says he's going to melt it with intense heat. It is going to be totally destroyed. And God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21.1, in which righteousness dwells. So the devil will be forever separated from the presence of God. He'll have no more access uh, to God with his demons, and they will be forever placed in the lake of fire with the lost of all time, and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Great question. Let's go to our next caller. All right. We have time for one more. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, I want to know, um, when the scriptures say praying in the Spirit, does that mean praying God's word back to him? That's one question. Okay. The one is about tithing. I know you are to give tithes, which I have been doing, and now it seems like the finances is not there, and the bills are backed up. So I am a tither, but now it seems like I need all the money to pay the bills. I don't know how God would see that. Uh, define tithing for me. What do you understand a tithe to be? Giving a tenth of the earnings. All right. All right. Good. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Well, let me um, let me first uh, deal with your I'll take the questions in the order that you gave them. First, uh, praying in the spirit at all times. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians chapter six, as well as in the book of Colossians chapter four. And uh, he, he tells us that, you know, we're to take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, in the Spirit. Now, in the New American Standard, and rightly so, Spirit is capitalized because he's describing praying as a Spirit-filled person. Uh, The context 
of this command goes back actually to chapter 5 and verse 18, where Paul says, and do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And a lot of us had modern English, unfortunately, and not uh, just good old-fashioned grammar. And so we didn't learn grammar when I uh, studied Greek. I'm so glad I had Mrs. Ryan in the ninth grade because she was uh, 72 years old, still teaching, and she was hardcore grammar. But I had to go even beyond that because I only had one really super great year in high school of uh, traditional grammar. But understanding Greek is understanding grammar and how it functions. And so there's a main verb, and then there's a series of participles that get their force from the verb. The main verb in the text is be filled with the Spirit. And then there's a series of participles that gain their force from that main verb that go all the way down through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. When you read in the parallel account in Colossians, you have it in like shrunk form. And um, he gives a different command, the word of God richly dwelling within you. But then he gives the exact same participles that flow from God's word richly dwelling in us. And there's obviously a parallel between being filled with the spirit and the word of God richly dwelling within us. And so my point is, is that when we pray in the spirit, we're praying as spirit filled people. That the Holy Spirit is filling my life. He indwells every believer, but he doesn't fill every believer. What's the difference? Well, the moment you're saved, you experience the baptism of the Spirit. But while every Christian has been baptized by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, and dwelt by the Spirit, not every Christian is filled with the Spirit. So we're never commanded to get the Spirit. As Romans 8 9, we've, which we've been studying, uh, assumes every Christian has the Spirit. Uh, we're never commanded to get him. We are commanded to be filled with him. I have a message online if you go to searchthescriptures.org entitled How to Be Filled with the Spirit. That would be a great message uh, to make sure you know what that means. Um, if you don't, watch that message. In terms of your question on tithing, I only have about 30 seconds. Let me just say that uh, tithing has to be understood in conjunction with all the other biblical principles on money. And some Christians think tithing is kind of a magic bullet, that if I just give 10% of the increase, that God's just going to bless me. Well, not if I violate what God says about borrowing, not if I violate what God says about saving. And so if you're struggling financially, I would say to this caller, call Community Bible Church and uh, get the course, How to Manage Your Money God's Way. It's six hours of teaching. On DVD, you'll get a 130-page notebook. Uh, many times we just give it to people because the people who need it the most can't even afford to pay for it. And we don't make any money off of it. And then after you go, um, here's the deal I usually make with non-members. You can have it for free if you use it and go all the way through it, assuming you can't afford to pay for it. And then you set up an appointment with one of our financial counselors who will help you uh, with your budget. And uh, if you don't go all the way through it, just sits on a shelf, then, then, then pay us for it, all right? Um, but we want to be able to help you to understand what God says about the whole realm about money. Anyway, we're out of time today. Always good to be with you. There's a lot of email questions we didn't get to, but God willing, on another day. Lord bless you. Have a great day.